Let's open Scripture to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, a few verses, and then chapter 3, a few verses, to help us understand our text in chapter 5. As we've been working our way in this sermon series through John, we, we've seen that the opening 18 verses of chapter 1 are introductory to the whole book and some of those themes they keep coming back and John weaves those themes in as he describes and records the ministry of Christ and we hope to see that again this morning we're going to read the first five verses of chapter 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. From there we go to chapter 3. Verse 25, 3 verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. I invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. Several weeks ago, we dealt with the first 18 verses, which involved the Lord Jesus healing the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. And then at the end of that incident or that event, there was a dispute with the Jewish leaders who took issue with the fact that the Lord healed the man on the Sabbath. And then they oppose him, and Jesus responds, and then they want to kill him. 
So we're just going to read verse 18, and then our text begins at verse 19, and we'll go to verse 29. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So far, our text. Saints of God in our Lord Jesus Christ, just who exactly is Jesus? You might think, well, that's an easy question. Jesus is our Savior. He is God's Son, born of the Virgin Mary. He came to the earth to suffer and die for our sins, to give us forgiveness, to give us a place in God's family. And all of that is true. All of that is wonderful. But is that all Jesus is? The people who saw Jesus in his earthly ministry, including the Jewish leaders he speaks to in our text, they all saw that he was quite different, even extraordinary. Nobody could deny his power to heal a lame man. And by this point in his ministry, the Lord had healed many sick, many crippled, released many from demon possession, so that there was no denying that this Jesus could exercise power, power that came down from heaven above. So he was a powerful man. But is that all that he is? A prophet like Elijah or Elisha, filled with incredible ability, the Jewish leaders, for their part, they resisted making even that conclusion 
But in our text, Jesus pushes back against their rejection to reveal that he is a man of power, but he's also much, much more than just a man on a mission from God. In our text, Jesus makes clear that he is nothing less than God himself. God who has total authority over life and death. That'll be our theme as I bring you this word of the Lord. Jesus is God's Son with authority over life and death. He has authority to give life. That'll be our first point. And He has authority to judge life. Well, as we read in verse 18, the Jewish leaders, they understood Jesus when He said, My Father is working until now, and I am working. They understood him to mean that he was making himself equal with God. And that made the Jewish leaders hopping mad. So mad, we read, they wanted to kill him. To them, it was not only ridiculous that Jesus of Nazareth could claim to be divine, but it was slanderous, it was blasphemous. And according to the blasphemy laws of Moses, it was worthy of death. John tells us that they were seeking some way to kill Jesus because he claimed to be divine. And then Jesus responds, starting in verse 19. In fact, all the way to the end of the chapter, it's quite a lengthy response. And in that response, Jesus is defending his claim against the Jewish leaders. Actually, he does more than defend it. He expands it, and he deepens his claim. You know, sometimes when Jesus was facing the hostility of the Jewish leaders, he chose to walk away. He did that in chapter 2. But sometimes he chose to stand his ground and even push back against their accusations. When he pushed back, it was not for personal gain, you understand. It was, it was not so that he could win a battle or something like that, but he did it so that the truth of the gospel could come out. Jesus answers the leaders, but he does so publicly. He does so in the hearing of his disciples because he wants everybody to understand exactly who he is. This is important. I'm not going to let the Jewish leaders fudge this over. And to stress how important it is, Jesus begins with the words that we've heard before, verse 19, truly, truly. You might recall from an earlier sermon that's literally, amen, amen. He'll say it twice more in our text, verses 24 and 25, and it was Jesus' unique way, because only He says it in the whole Bible, of stressing His very unique authority. Amen was normally a word spoken in response, a word to affirm what somebody else was saying. But here, Jesus puts it up front and He doubles it. He doubles it to emphasize his own word, to affirm what he's about to say. In other words, he uses the statement, amen, amen, to validate his own claim. And that already tells us that there's something 
different about Jesus, a mere human does not have the authority to validate his or her own claim. I mean, if you go to a court of law and give testimony, the testimony of one person is never satisfactory to the judge. Legally, you need two witnesses or you need one witness plus hard evidence, but a person can never self-validate their own testimony, and yet Jesus can. Jesus can because while He certainly is fully human, He's also much more. He's fully God. That's the deeper point that He wants to make in verse 19 when Jesus says, "...the Son can do nothing of His own accord." but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He's answering the charge. The Jews had charged Jesus with making himself equal with God. As in, they thought Jesus was making himself to be another independent God besides the one true God. And in verse 19, Jesus is saying, no, no, I don't make myself anything. What I am is this, I am son to the Father. And I do not act independently from the Father. The Jews were thinking that Jesus was setting himself up as some kind of a competitor to God and thus a blasphemer. But Jesus states that He is not a competitor of God. He's rather an agent of God. He's the one who has come to do the Father's bidding. He says that the Son acts totally in sync with His Father. And then below the surface in that claim, brothers and sisters, is something that the Jews would not have been able to comprehend. How can the Son do the things that the Father does unless the, the Son Himself is all-powerful, holy, and divine like the Father. There's an implication in these claims. Jesus can't just be an angel. He can't just be a messenger doing certain tasks that His Father above has bidden Him to do. For how can Jesus do everything the Father does unless He's equal to the Father, and more unless He's one with the Father. You see, beloved, our, our Savior with, with His defense is taking us into the mystery of the Trinity, at least as it concerns the Father and the Son. Every Jew knew what we heard Moses say in Deuteronomy 6, as I quoted a little while ago, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was a, a well-known bedrock truth no Israelite denied. There is only one true God. His name is Yahweh. He's our covenant God, and He is one. He's singular. This was, this was every Jew knew that. So the moment Jesus starts saying things about Himself, that apply to Yahweh, the one true God, He is very subtly but unmistakably revealing that He is this one true God. 
And still he takes us further and deeper, for as much as God is one, yet in God's oneness, Jesus is telling us there is a two-ness in the oneness. There's a father and a son. Now later on, also in John's gospel, Jesus will speak about the Holy Spirit to make clear that there is a threeness in the oneness, Trinity. But here in our text, he's focused on letting his opponents know and his disciples know that he is son to the Father in heaven. He is of the same essence as the Father in heaven. He has the same power as the Father in heaven. He does the same works as the Father in heaven. He's taking us into this mystery we call the Trinity. And that's hard to understand, isn't it? I mean, how do you put your mind around that? Even today, after 2,000 years of reflection, our minds fail to grasp the inner workings of the Godhead. But sometimes I wonder, brothers and sisters, if we, we get into the habit of thinking of Jesus too separately from the Father. I think all of us will know that the Father sent the Son to the earth to do the incredible work of saving His people, but do we then think of the Father as residing back in heaven while the Son is on earth doing His work? We know that Jesus came to work for the Father, that He did it out of love for the Father. But do we understand that the Father was in Jesus all the time that Jesus was on earth doing His task? The persons of the Trinity are distinct from one another, but they are never apart from each other. So in other words, to meet Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem the man Jesus was to meet the Father. It was to hear the Father speak. The Son of God is not just a powerful agent sent from God doing God's work. No, the Son of God is God. He's fully and completely God. And the Father is in Him even as the Father and the Son can be distinguished. Jesus says in verse 20 that the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. That's an echo of what we read from chapter 3, John the Baptist speaking, chapter 3, verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father-Son relationship inside the Godhead, that is not something that has a starting point at some point in the past. No, the, the father-son relationship, that's how God is. That's how God has always been. Our text, you see, is unpacking the words that John opened his gospel with. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We learn in our text that God the Word is also God the Son. 
who is loved by God the Father from all eternity. Brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus, He wants us to understand as best we can these profound and deep truths so that we can honor Him and worship Him more fully, that our hearts can be filled with awe and wonder. I mean, He is God, full God in the flesh, not a part of God, not 30% of God, not an agent of God. He's God in the flesh. In Jesus of Nazareth, we come to know God the Father. We come to know in Jesus the God who created Adam and Eve. In Jesus, we come to know God who called Abram out of Ur. In Him, we meet the God who descended on Mount Sinai. Think of that, how that went, how God descended on Mount Sinai in fire and smoke with the earth and the mountain trembling. When we meet Jesus in prayer, we're meeting that God of Mount Sinai, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. You, brothers and sisters, have a relationship with this almighty, eternal God if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ because they are one and the same. So there's this awe factor we need to develop in our hearts. But there's more. Our Savior wants us to find in Him. He wants us to find in Him a a tremendous, overwhelming comfort as we face our, our worst crisis. For what is the worst problem facing every human? I mean, we've all got our problems, right? You can list your problems. What, what, what have you got for problems? You might have problems with your parents. You might have a problem with your child. You might have a, a girlfriend issue or a boyfriend conundrum. It might be financial woes. Or like the lame man at Bethesda, you might have it that your body doesn't work like it should. Or, or maybe, maybe it's your mind that is breaking down. Or you have a disease. These can all be very, very serious difficulties, and they seem like mountains we could never hope to climb. They are problems, but do you know what is a bigger problem than all these things put together? A problem that every single human ever has had to deal with and has not been able to overcome. What's that problem? It's the problem of death. There's no human that has not died. Who has figured out how to come back from the dead? Who has figured out how to stave off death and remain forever young? Compared to the other problems, you, it's, it's, it's unsolvable, right? I mean, you, you might get your girlfriend or your family situation resolved, Maybe. You might even get your physical health back, but what will you do when you come to the brink of death? We sang about that in Psalm 49. Who can stop you? Who can stop me from breathing our last and entering into the grave? I mean, when death comes a calling, who can resist it? Wouldn't it be the best news ever if someone came up with a remedy for death. 
Wouldn't the entire medical world and every news outlet in the world shouted from the mountaintops if someone came up with a surefire way, a surefire cure for death? I mean, wouldn't that make world news? Well, beloved, they can start shouting it from the mountaintops along with us because the cure for death is Jesus, Son of God. That's what He's telling us in this passage, starting in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. See, this is one of the greater works mentioned in verse 20 that the Jews will see Jesus do. They had seen Jesus heal a man 38 years lame, but now Jesus is saying that His power, it goes way beyond the healing of a lame man. The Son has power to do what only God the Creator has power to do. The Son, He's saying, has power to give life to the dead. As Jesus will say in verse 26, the Father has granted the Son to have life in Himself. This is the incredible cure the world needs but doesn't want, not from Jesus. But to, to say this in plain words, Jesus is, is saying, I have the power and the authority over the grave. I can walk to the graveyard down the road. I can call any person I want out of their tomb, out of their grave, and they will come back to life. That's exactly what he did to Lazarus later on, didn't he? Beloved, your Savior is God the Son who holds the solution to humanity's biggest crisis, death. He undoes death for anyone He chooses, and He has chosen you and me and all of His children. Does that not flood your heart with incredible relief and joy? And if this Jesus can solve the world's hugest, hardest, worst, most frustrating and hurtful problem, death, do you not think He can help you with your problems? Your other problems? He's God. He's got authority, he says, to raise the dead. And he means that in two ways. Look at verse 25, if you, if you would. He says there, Truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now, when you read that, at first, it might sound like he's speaking about the future day of the general resurrection. Problem is that Jesus also adds, and is now here. So a day is coming and is now here. So he's saying it's a present reality and a future reality. A few verses later, verse 28, Jesus clearly speaks about the future day of judgment and the general resurrection of all the dead. But in verse 25, he's got something else in mind. There's a present reality, 
And that goes back to verse 24. Amen, amen, I say to you, whoever hears my word, present tense, and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life. He has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. It's very compact, but he's saying this. Jesus has been sent from the Father to speak the Father's message. When someone believes Jesus' words, then they are, in fact, believing the Father because it's the Father's message. That's how united they are. But more than that, he's saying a person who believes what Jesus says has passed over from death to life. So what is he talking about? Well, brothers and sisters, he's not talking about a physical resurrection. He's talking about a spiritual resurrection. It's an echo of verse 21. The Son gives life to whomever He will, spiritual life, eternal life. Remember John 1 verse 4, which we read, in the Word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. In the Word was life. That life shines like a light into darkness. What's darkness? That's a description of the human condition, our human condition, depravity. Later on, the Apostle Paul describes the human condition as dead. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, we are children of wrath. That's how we start life. Outside of God, outside of His covenant, we are children of wrath. Every human is born spiritually dead, alienated from God, hater of the Creator, and bound only for hell. That's the condition of every human being. But God, God Himself comes to the earth in the Christ, in Jesus, the Son, and He's come to give life to the dead. To us. He calls out to us through the preaching of the gospel. To those that Jesus wants to give life, He announces the gospel, and they will be made to hear by the power of the Spirit, and they will believe, and they will come alive in their hearts. That's the spiritual resurrection he's talking about in verse 24. So if you believe, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, if your heart has come alive to love Jesus as Son of God and love the Father along with Him, then you are already an inheritor of life. You no longer are bound for condemnation. You've crossed over to life. That's the kind of astounding authority and power your Savior Jesus Christ possesses. He brings the spiritually dead back to life. Is this not where our greatest and in fact our only hope lies in this life? We know spiritually dead people, right? People we care about, and it grieves us to know that they are still in their deadness. We know people who, who hear the Son of God speak 
to them in the Scriptures and in the preaching, but who do not believe. And when we think of them, we shudder because we know what awaits them if they do not change. We lament the spiritually dead. We cannot make them see it. We cannot compel them to believe it. We cannot give them faith. We cannot resurrect their dead hearts. But brothers and sisters, our text is telling us the Lord Jesus Christ can, even despite the hardness of those hearts. Our text is meant as a consolation to us also in that respect. What is impossible for us to do is more than possible for this, the Son of God, to do. And so, place your hope in Him alone. Don't place your hope in, in, in humans, but in Him, God. And remember that just as Jesus pulled you and me out of the realm of death, so He can do the same with those we think of, the ambivalent, the confused, the clueless, and also the arrogant and the hard-hearted and the rebellious. So call out to the Lord Jesus. Do not let up in your prayers. Call out to Him. Lean on Him who transfers His chosen ones. We don't know who those chosen ones are. But if they belong to Him from eternity, He will do His work. Just pray about it. Pray for it. Transferring them from a state of wrath to a state of grace. For that is the other great or greater work mentioned in verse 20 that the Father shows to the Son, that the Father actually gives the Son to do. It's the work of judging. Judging all people. It's first mentioned in verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And it's repeated in verse 27. Notice again how Jesus puts Himself on par with the Father. Son and Father are worthy of the same honor. I mean, if this was just a human saying that, that you need to have the same honor uh, toward me. You have to give me the same honor as you give God the Father. And it was just a human, that would be blasphemy. But the Father and the Son have the same honor. That's equality. To be sure, they have different roles. Throughout this passage, it's really clear the Son obeys the Father. The Father never obeys the Son. The Father commissions the Son. The Son never commissions the Father. Different roles, but still equal. And it's the Son who receives a commission from the Father. The Father has given Him the task to both save people and judge people. Those two things are very closely related. On the one hand, in chapter 3, verse 36, we read, the Son has been sent to give life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's chapter 3, verse 36. That's a present reality. But on the other hand, there is judgment too. Same verse, chapter 3. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Remains. That's a present reality too. 
All humans, as mentioned a moment ago, are born into this world under God's wrath. That's how we start. We're under God's wrath. But if they obey the preaching of Jesus and believe that He is the Christ sent from God who takes away all their sins in His death, they immediately come out from under God's wrath and enter into His love. There's no waiting. That becomes a present reality. That's what Jesus is emphasizing in verse 24 of our text. The person who believes that the Father sent me, says Christ, does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. You could translate, has crossed over from death to life. Do you realize, brothers and sisters, that as believers, you have entered into a new state of existence? Life, eternal life, is your possession now and forever. I want to zero in for a moment on this idea of state, the state of existence. It maybe is a bit abstract. But I want you to imagine for a moment a murderer, someone who has been tried and is found truly guilty without a shadow of a doubt, a murderer in prison, living on death row, moving ever closer to the day of his execution. That person lives in a state of condemnation. He's been sentenced to death. He knows what's coming. And while he's physically alive in his jail cell, nevertheless, the sentence of death hangs over his head day and night until the time comes and it actually happens. And while he's alive on death row in this state of condemnation, well, how do you think his, his life would be? It would be a miserable existence, wouldn't it? No matter how he would try to brighten up his life on death row, it would just be one long, drawn-out death. Well, that's a picture of you and me, of every human by nature, guilty sinners living on death row under condemnation. That's the state of nature for us. But now imagine something else. Imagine the same murderer, out of the blue, received a presidential pardon. That kind of thing can happen in the U.S., for example. The prison guards would hand him his personal belongings. They would walk him to the front gate. They would release him into society. Well, now this person's state has changed. This person is no longer living in a state of condemnation. No longer is there this dark cloud of impending judgment and doom, for that has been forever removed. He's been pardoned. Can't go back on a pardon. Now the man is living in a new state, the state of pardon, the state of forgiveness, the state of grace and freedom. 
And that's how he'll live for the rest of his days. Well, brothers and sisters, that's the state you and I are in now because we are in Christ. We are no longer under the the righteous judgment of God because Jesus Christ went under that righteous judgment of God in our place. And in doing so, He removed it from our heads. He took us out of death row. And more than a presidential pardon could ever do, the Son of God paid for every sin we have ever committed. And get this, every sin we ever will commit. Past, present, future. He's paid for them all in one shot on the cross. That means that we Christians, we will never ever go back under a state of condemnation. We will never ever go back under God's judgment on death row. We will never have to leave the new state of pardon and grace. For all who have been granted faith in Christ, we belong to Jesus Christ, body and soul, in life and in death. We will always and forever be in that state of pardon, what the Bible calls the state of justification. And it's really a comfort to know that on many levels. Like when in weakness you or I sin, And it's a doozy of a sin, maybe. Do not think that you lose your state of pardon. Do not think that you lose in that moment your salvation. Now, of course, our sins bring us sorrow. They absolutely should. Just as they bring our Father in heaven sorrow and Jesus teaches us to repent daily and and pray for forgiveness. And in the strength of the Holy Spirit, we're involved in battles against sin every day. But never think that, that one sin or even repeated sins, those are nasty, aren't they? Never think that our sins take us back to death row. No, there's no going back because in Christ there is no condemnation. Romans 8 verse 1. You are out of sin's prison. You are in the freedom of God's family. No longer are you a condemned criminal, but you are a pardoned daughter. You are a forgiven son in your father's house. Do you mess up from time to time? Yes, so do I. But you live in that state of grace. You repent, you're forgiven, you go on. That's how it goes. And because you and I have this fantastic new state, the state of pardon and justification, we can look forward eagerly to Christ's return and to the final judgment when all of the Son's saving work will come to fullness. That will be the day when that other resurrection will take place, the the worldwide resurrection of every human being, believer and unbeliever alike. As verse 28 says, do not marvel at this, For an hour is coming, that's future, when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, 
those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those who have done evil. That means those who have never turned to Jesus Christ, those who hate their Maker, those who have always been under and remain under God's wrath, on that final day they will receive what they've always had coming. And they will receive it from the judge. Their judge will be Jesus. Since they had no use for the Father or the Son, He will see that justice is done and they will be sent far away into a place where the wrath of God burns eternally. But Jesus will also be your judge and mine. The judge of all who have earlier put their trust in Him. Those who, who truly have believed in Jesus, they will be known on that day by their deeds. Jesus says those who have done good. He's not talking about justification by works. No, no. He's just saying, look, a tree is known by its fruits. That's what he said earlier in, the, er, in another time in the Gospels. You will know Christians by their love. A tree is known by its fruits. So just to be really clear, this, this gift of justification, forgiveness, pardon, salvation, it's a free gift. It comes by God's grace to all who believe in Jesus. But then that faith that heart that has come alive in faith, that, that heart's going to go to work. It will always show itself in a new lifestyle of loving God and loving the neighbor. It can't help but do so because it's the Holy Spirit living in us who makes us alive and produces the fruit. So now imagine this day has come. The, the clouds have broken open. The sky has been rent asunder. Jesus and all the dead and all the angels are coming back on the clouds, riding the clouds like a chariot. And we are swept up there, and there's going to be judgment somehow, some way. Well, on that day, when you and I stand there in our resurrected bodies before the judge of the whole world, all the living and the dead, and then you see on the throne the one who earlier was sent by the Father to be crucified in your place, the one whose word you believed in your life on earth, then your heart will burst with joy because you will understand, as we already now know, but it'll be super clear, the judge who's handing out sentences, the judge is your Savior. There's no sentence for you. He's your Savior. Then faith, the things we've been believing and hoping all our lives, faith will become sight. And the eternal life that we've already experienced now, in, in you could say spring blossom, it will on that day burst forth into full summer flower. Jesus will send you into this glorious, everlasting life because He is what He's always been. He is God, Son of God, 
with all authority over life. Amen.